All right, so we are in a series right now called Vision Sundays. What an exciting sounding series is that, right? And we're talking about God's vision for our church and where, where we're going, um, what the future looks like for us and what it is that we're gonna go after. Um, a vision is a picture of, of, the, of the future, basically. A vision, having a sense of vision is saying, I have an idea, a picture in my mind of, of, the, of the world looking different in some way, of, of a reality that doesn't exist now. And so we are working towards and ministering towards whatever the vision is that God has given us as a church. Um, and that's what we're talking about kind of this morning. Last week though, and I don't do this too often, but it's important to do this in, in this series, I think is to do a little bit of, of review. So I'm gonna pull up my slides from last week here and we're gonna... Um, once I can get them going. Do my slides work back there? I don't think there's anybody there. Oh, they're all gone. Let me go back. Okay, yeah, that's good. Um, so we are, so this is our series, Vision Sunday. You're supposed to be seeing that first because I'm, I, you know, I made it and I'm excited about it. Okay, the gospel, we talked about this last week. We talk about how any vision that we have, anywhere that we go needs to be built, first and foremost on God's word, it needs to be built on his gospel. Um, and the good news of the gospel is the gospel isn't just something that gets us in the door. The gospel is something that we actually stand on every day. And it's, there's power to the gospel and that power is what drives us forward and gives us any hope for anything in the future, life in the future, change in the future, growth in the future. And so the gospel is essential. Uh, the gospel is, um, is central to everything that we do. And any vision that we have as a church that isn't built on the gospel is not a healthy biblical or good vision and is certainly not something from God. So, um, so we're going to seek to be focusing on the gospel. Now, the other thing that we talked about, apart from the gospel being essential is that the gospel is indeed corruptible, that the Bible tells us all the time about the ways in which the Bible, or I'm sorry, the ways in which the gospel can be corrupted. And you see, um, you see leaders and pastors in scripture warning the people by either corrupting it by taking things away from the gospel, taking things out of it, making it less than it should be, by adding into it, adding some more rules, some more expectations, some more requirements than it ought to, or even usually out of a place of wanting more people to accept and understand the gospel, simplifying it, changing it, making it a little bit more palatable um, so that then maybe more people can come to, to receive it because isn't that something that we should want, right? And so it's often even out of that place, a good place maybe, that people allow the gospel to become corrupted and not be what it is. And if the gospel is not intact, if we don't guard the deposit of the gospels we talked about last week, then, um, then we're in danger of building um, our church and our community on something other than how God intended us to build it on. And most importantly, on something other than the power of Christ. So this week, um, and so the result of that is that we are a gospel community. We're a community of people who live in light of the gospel. Um, and that is the most important characteristic defining thing about us is that we're all about the gospel. We're a gospel community. Um, this week, we're gonna start off in Matthew chapter four. It says on my slide, chapter five, and that is because all of my slides are always wrong. And you guys have probably already started to see that. Actually, second service, you guys get the corrected slides most of the time, but I didn't correct this one so you could see the real me. First service is usually a line of people over here to let me know about like, what, I, what I messed up. Uh, about a month ago, I invented a book of the Bible that wasn't even real. I'm not even kidding. I said Hezekiah, I think, was a book of the Bible, which I don't believe is. Um, I guess there isn't a class in seminary where they just make you learn the books of the Bible. Um, I don't know. So, so just know that occasionally I'm going to just totally blow the name of a book or a chapter or I'm going to have the wrong thing. And that's just how I am absent-minded. I'm sorry. Um, but I promise you, I have been reading the Bible this week. Um, so in Matthew, we're going to start in chapter four here. And this is the beginning of discipleship journey with Jesus and his disciples. This is what it says. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was also called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately... They left their boat and their father, and they followed him. 
Now, there's a question that I'm going to ask you kind of throughout this morning's message as we look at where we're going as a church. And the question is this, it's do you see what I see? When we look at scripture this morning and we look at what Jesus did and we look at what his disciples did, the question I'm asking you is, do you see there what I'm seeing in there? And I ask you that because if where we're going as a church is built off of the ministry of Jesus himself, um, and if I see something in the ministry of Jesus himself and you see something totally different, then you may not be so excited, right? That may be like, feel like a disconnect. And so it's important this morning above all else that, that hopefully my hope is that you see what I see when I look at what Jesus is calling his disciples to. Now this passage is about following Jesus. This is the beginning of that journey for the disciples, for the first disciples. He comes to them and he says, follow me. What he asks of them, these guys in a boat, follow me. Now, when we talk about following Jesus, we mean something by this. We mean something specific by it. We mean living a certain way. We mean acting a certain way. We mean believing certain things. We mean giving our allegiance to Jesus as we would sometimes give it to others. That's what following Jesus means. It means acting and living and believing and giving our allegiance to Jesus. When I was in high school, there was uh, these, these bracelets that we were all wearing. Um, they helped us a lot in this process because they were WWJD bracelets. Uh, and the WWJD stood for What Would Jesus Do? Now, this was based on a book that was written called What Would Jesus Do? And uh, it was really just about what it would be like if a person, the simplest idea, right? If a person decided that they would... Um, make every decision they made asking the question, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do, right? And so when you're in a situation, you look at your WWJD bracelet, you go, oh yeah, what would Jesus do? Well, would Jesus be honest in this situation or would he lie? Would Jesus be loving or would he be maybe judgmental? Would he be compassionate? Would Jesus choose to work hard or would he choose to be lazy or whatever it was? Would Jesus, would Jesus stop and talk to this person or would Jesus walk on by? And so uh, it was really helpful. I remember for me and my faith at the time to just have this reminder again and again. And it, and it, and it caused a lot of people to ask the question, is following Jesus something that we do sometimes? No, it's something that we do all the time. Hence the bracelet that you wear all the time. If you were a real follower, if you're a real committed, you had a pretty nasty bracelet, right? And that meant you didn't take it off in the shower. That meant you didn't take it off when you were doing anything because you were really serious about doing what Jesus would do all the time. Not just, you know, when you get up and get ready in the morning and then when you get home from work and take it off, right? What would Jesus do? It was really helpful. It was really good. But it's incomplete. And it actually speaks to a, a fundamental misunderstanding about what it means to live like Jesus, about what it means to follow Jesus. Something that Christians will often say is uh, Jesus wasn't just a teacher. He wasn't just some ethical teacher. He wasn't just there to teach us good rules and ways to live. But if following Jesus is as simple as having a bracelet that reminds you to ask yourself, what would Jesus do? And what Jesus would do is always just going, whatever situation I'm in, I'm going to ask how he would handle it, how he would feel, how he would act, what he would say, what he would do, because I'm going to act like Jesus in that situation. That's a fundamental misunderstanding of what it is to follow Jesus. And what it does is it actually does reduce Jesus to an ethical teacher. It says, do the right thing, make the right choice, act as Jesus would act in this situation, and in doing so, you're following Jesus. What did Jesus mean then when he said, follow me? Did he mean act like me? Did he mean come after me? What he meant was he meant I'm going somewhere and I want you to go there too. I mean, he was quite literally walking somewhere when he called these disciples to him. They had to get out of a boat and they had to follow him. And following him didn't just mean, he didn't say, hey, uh, come out of the boat and start acting like me. Come out of the boat and start thinking like me. He said, come out of the boat and follow me. And then he went somewhere, right? In fact, you know that because what were the objections that people gave to following him? Staying, right? 
well, my father is dying and I need to keep his household in order. I have reasons that I need to stay. And what he would say to them is, come follow me. He wouldn't say, okay, I'll come back later and pick you up, right? He wouldn't say, you know what, it's fine. I'm going to leave you with some material. You should be able to do everything here. He didn't. He said, go with me. It implied movement. It implied actually following Jesus. And what he says to them is not just follow me. What does he say to the people in the boat? He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. What does he mean by that, fishers of men? Well, in the Gospels, Jesus also tells a parable about a fisherman. He tells a parable about how a fisherman casts a net into the, into the ocean and they, they use it to collect all these fish. Then these fish are sorted, the good and the bad fish. And this has to do with um, the kingdom of God, right? So if the same guy told a parable of a fisherman in a net in terms of the kingdom of God here, and the same guy is using this, this illustration by saying, I'm gonna make you fishers of men over here, then we can assume he means the same thing. And what he means is you are the gatherers, you are the workers in bringing people to God, bringing people to the kingdom of God, to ushering them into the kingdom of God. That's what he's inviting them to do. Get out of the boat, come with me, and begin to gather people with me as we bring people to God and to his kingdom. Jesus did not invite them to a healing ministry. He didn't invite them to a prayer ministry. He didn't invite them to a worship ministry. He didn't invite them to some kind of a life transformation course, even though it actually honestly kind of looks like that sometimes, right? Like, hey, three years with Jesus and look at how your life will turn around, right? It kind of looks like that, like a, like a Jesus boot camp. But that's not what he called them to. He didn't just invite them to follow him until he was gonna die in three years so he could have some company and he could have some friends and he could have community and people around him. He asked them to follow him to reach the lost. He was on a mission. Jesus was on a mission. You can't read the gospels and not see that, right? That's what I see. I see someone on a mission to reach the lost. I see someone on a mission to do something else, which he outlines to them. This is the very beginning of their discipleship call is right here. Then at the very end, after he, is, he dies, he's resurrected, he comes back to his disciples, we read this. In Matthew 28, at the, end of the, at the end of the book. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountains to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the commission that he gives them. This is the great commission that Jesus gives them. He begins and ends his time with them with this call to go. To go and to bring the kingdom of God to others and to make disciples. To teach them, to observe the things that he's commanded of them. We use this great commission in the church to explain why we do what we do. You can't find a church without this in their, you know, mission statement or somewhere in their documentation that we exist because of the great commission. But I don't think this great commission actually dictates what a lot of churches do. We see Jesus talking about reaching the lost and calling his disciples to go and now own that mission in his place. He even says to them, the Holy Spirit's going to come and empower you, and you're the ones who are going to do what I was doing before you, which is a pretty big task to give somebody. We see something similar happen with Peter. Um, also, after the resurrection, Jesus comes to Peter. We see this in the end of John. And here's what we read. Peter and Simon are the same person. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So now Jesus has given Peter the charge to feed the followers of him. Feed his followers, those in the kingdom of God who are alive here on this earth now. Okay? And, this, and through this, we see the church is born, right? We see Peter start. We see them begin these, um, these, these apostolic and these evangelistic missions as they go out and they begin to build the church as people are converted and as they gather together and experience a lot of what we have here today. But you'll notice something, and this is something that many see when we look in the New Testament, when we look in Scripture, even in the Old Testament, is we say, yeah, he gave this job to who? To Peter, right? He gave this great commission to who? The disciples, like the varsity level, highly trained, got to actually live with Jesus' disciples. We're not quite in that boat, right? He, he calls people to this, sure, nothing new there. He calls people to reach the lost. He calls people to make disciples. We know people who have been called to do that. Some of us feel that we've been called to do that thing in that way. But that's because these are the people that are gifted in it. That's because these are the people who he always intended for them to live their lives doing this thing. And so the rest of us do what we can to support them and to equip them and to send them off, right? Those are the gifts of evangelism. Those are the gifts of discipleship. Those are the gifts of shepherding. Those are the gifts of teaching and leadership and all these things. Yes, they go off and do that. That's what we see in the Bible because who's Jesus talking to? He's talking to Peter. But we read what Peter says to his churches. We read what Peter says in 1 Peter. As he's writing a letter to the church as they're experiencing trial and tribulation. He says this to them, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What Peter is saying to them is this is everyone's job. It's all of us. It's a priesthood of all believers. It's interesting what he tells his church about who they are, about their very identity. He says, first of all, you're a chosen race, which means you have been so changed by the gospel that in your very DNA, you are now bound together that you are now part of the same lineage, the same heritage, the same culture, the same family. It's not because of where you were born. It's not because of where you grew up or who your ancestors were, which, is, which was everything that had come before. But it is that you have been fundamentally changed because of the gospel to where you are now your own race of people together, united by this thing. And you also are a royal priesthood. You're all priests. This, Peter, the guy given the charge by Jesus to get to be the boss, to get to do it. What did he say to his church when they were experiencing temptation and trial? When, when wanting the mission of God to go forth is leading to a very difficult life for them. What does he say? Does he say, don't worry about it. I'm the man. I'll take care of everything. I'm the boss. I'm Peter. I know. I have the answers. I can tell you. You just need me. I'll try to come visit and take care of all of it. Give me more money and then you'll be fine. No. He says to them, you're all priests. And a priest is a bridge. It's a bridge between those who don't have God and God. And it goes both ways. The priests in the Old Testament, they brought the needs of the people into the Holy of Holies, and they brought the very presence of God back out with them to dwell amongst the people who needed it for everything, for life, for everything. God is life. Without God, no life. You're all the priests. You're all the ones now with this job description. You're his people for his own possession. And so where are we going? In light of this, if you see what I see here, where we're going is we're going to the lost. We're going to the not yet discipled. 
We're going to the lost with the gospel, with the good news of the kingdom. We're going to those who need to be discipled, not just so that they can learn some things from us and then we can call them mature, but so that they themselves can go and disciple because that's what Jesus actually told them to do. Discipling, being a disciple of Jesus meant going and making disciples of Jesus. It's, it's a reproducible thing. And in that sense, it is truly fruitful. It's not addition, it's multiplication. It's where real life comes from and real growth comes from. And so we are going to bring the gospel to the people who don't yet know it, and all of us do it. We all do it. Now, this is a big shift from the way that many of us think of what it is to be a part of God's family, what it is to be a follower of Jesus, what it is to follow him, even though he says right there in the call, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. This is a shift, a huge one. It means we don't just rely on trained professionals. Those are the gifts of evangelism. Those are the gifts of discipleship. It means we're all equal participants in the mission of God. This means that the moment you become a Christian, you're an evangelist. The moment you become a Christian, you're a disciple maker. The moment you become a Christian, you're a missionary. The moment you become one. Because that's what Jesus did. The moment they began following him, everything they did was done in the context of reaching others. So this means that a normal response to accepting Jesus in your heart and following him here at OCEC is living for the mission of God. Because this is what Jesus called those who followed him to do. And if we tell people anything different, we tell them something less than what Jesus called them to. Now, sometimes it's a lot easier to tell people less, right? But what Jesus said was, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And so we say, follow Jesus, and he will make you a fisher of men. Now, my experience in the church, and by this I mean like my whole life that I've been a part of the church, has been that the church, for the most part, undervalues evangelism, undervalues discipleship, true discipleship, reproducible discipleship. That the church actually kind of undervalues these things. While at the same time being very dismayed by how little of that we see happening. You know, like, where's all the people and people coming to faith and people coming to churches and people growing and actually like wanting to invest in others for the sake of discipleship. I'm so bummed that I don't see that, but not seeing how we've undervalued these things in a way that's led to that. And then oftentimes seeing that the only response is, okay, we'll just come up with some kind of a program and that'll take care of it, right? We'll come up with some evangelistic program and, and then we'll, we'll launch it and then that'll take care of everything. We'll come up with some discipleship program and then we'll launch it and that'll take care of everything. And then sometimes that's the only way that we know how to do something. But oftentimes those things are just our way of saying, I don't want to do it. But maybe if we do something, then other people who need it will do it and they can leave me alone, right? We've taken the call of Jesus and we've divorced it from actually following Jesus. We've allowed our faith to become this privatized thing that basically says, go about living your life, but live it and act in a way that you think Jesus would act. Put him in all the situations that you find yourself in and just ask what he would do, how he would talk, how he would respond, his attitude, his maturity, his integrity, his character. And so we should just act differently while we're doing them. And then we complain as people leave and as the church grows smaller and as the community of faith grows smaller. And I'm talking like the whole church, everywhere. We complain about consumerism without acknowledging that it's still what the overwhelming majority of churches are built on because we don't know how to be built on anything else. Anything other than the idea that just come and we'll feed you and we'll give you something and then you'll be good and you'll be okay and everybody will be fine. Consumerism is the idea that only the most mature, the most seasoned, the most devout Christians can actually give. That's where consumer mentality comes from. 
It's saying there are a few who will one day get to the point where they can actually invest in others, care for others. But the normal people, most people, I wouldn't say we should probably expect that of them. Instead, let's expect them to just take and take. And we tell each other that's what it means to follow Jesus. We say you need that. You need to be about you if you're going to grow in your faith. You need to be fiercely devoted to your faith if you're going to grow. And if you're not, well, watch out. The danger will creep in. Even the idea of calling, okay, the word calling, the idea of calling. Calling indicates something that's not typical. What a, a calling is the exception to the rule, right? Nobody ever says, when did you feel called to marriage? When did you feel called to have children? No, but people say, when did you feel called to singleness? When did you feel called to not have kids, right? Nobody ever says, when did you feel called to stay in the town you always grew up in? No one says that. But they say, why did you move, right? Why did you leave? Because there's what the majority of people do by nature. And then there's the exception, and the exception requires calling, it requires prompting, it requires leading. And so what we do is we say that to be called to reach the lost is something that extra that has to happen to you. God has to do something in your life and stir something in your heart and challenge you and change you and do something to wake you up and make you realize you're one of the few that he has called to reach others. Well, what does that make everyone else feel like? It's okay, then I'm not called. I mean, clearly they're called. Maybe I'm called to support them, pray for them, encourage them. That person's clearly called to make disciples. I don't feel like that's my calling. I don't feel called. I don't think that's me. I don't think that's my family. It's probably not the majority of people because it's a calling. But because of this, what we model for future generations both within our families and of believers, is that very idea. We raise children and families where we teach them that you have to be exceptional to actually be called out for the mission of God. We, 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 make believe, we, we, we watch people come to faith and we raise a generation of people in faith, new believers, telling them like, like, the normal thing is to just kind of live life and be about you and love Jesus and follow him. The really unique thing, the really big thing, but it takes a lot of sacrifice and only a few people are led to it, is the calling, right? We say live your life, build your life, pursue yourself, and just make sure you keep going to the church and being involved. I mean, how much is that what we show others, right? I'm not talking about like some lukewarm faith. I'm talking about like in our best of efforts of showing people what it is to follow Jesus, not and I will make you fish as a man, just follow Jesus. We say, live your life, keep going, pursue yourself, just make sure you keep going to church and make sure you keep being involved. I think one of the Things as a church, the thing as a church, the thing that we should desire, I should say, within our families, within our church, is to be raising and equipping missionaries. And I'm not just saying missionaries who go live overseas. I'm not just saying missionaries here who live on full-time support. I'm saying we are raising missionaries within our own families and within our church. We're not just trying to make disciples, but disciples that make more disciples, right? We're not just trying to feed someone so that they can maybe get to a point where they're okay on their own. No, because that's not how it's supposed to be. We're meant to disciple someone so that they can go disciple someone, so that they can go. There's something inherently valuable about the investment that person made in me for the kingdom, and I must make that investment into someone else. Because if I don't, then I'm not doing what Jesus said to do. But I think a big part of the reason why we hesitate to do this is because we think it will cost us too much. And I don't mean comfort. I mean we think it will cost us 
holiness. It will cost us maturity. We go, if I'm focused on others, how can I possibly focus enough on myself that my faith is solid, right? I've got enough to worry about with myself and my family and my friends and my community and the church. We have enough to worry about in here. How, how can we really worry much about out there? Wouldn't I just have to choose to not care about one so I can care about the other? Is that what you're telling me? Are you saying abandoning, abandoning caring about your own faith and just care about the faiths of others, about those who don't yet know? And so I'll ask you again, do you see what I see? Because what I see is this, that this is the vehicle by which Jesus said that we would grow. Would you say that the disciples grew in the years that they were with Jesus? I would say they grew a little. I would say they learned a little. I would say they, they, they grew in their faith, being their dependence on God and their ability to step out and do things that if he hadn't shown up, they would have fallen flat on their face. Did God use them? You could say that. Did it ever lead to anything? I don't know, maybe, right? That the very vehicle for growth, for maturity, was this, was being a part of God's mission. And I can tell you that the further I've, I've, I've tried to step into that mission, the more I have seen that true. The more I have seen how much more growth comes from investing in others, sharing with others, living for others, for the sake of the gospel, than ever came from the, from the stacks of journals I have about my own self-reflection like, to the point of like being completely self-absorbed in my faith. I just had to figure out one more thing. I have to get past one more thing. I have to deal with one more issue. Then I'll be good. We say that once you know everything, that you'll be ready. And so we have classes, and I literally have no idea what the classes have been at this church, so what I'm saying right now is not about this church. But we have classes. We have 101. We have 201. Does this church have that? We have 301. We have 401. So when you come to the church and you become a part of the church, I mean, this is the only thing that makes sense to us, so this, it makes sense that we do it this way. We've done it at every church I've been a part of. You come, you, you do the classes, right? You learn 101, you learn some of the basics of the faith, you learn some of the theology, then you learn the history, then maybe you learn about finances and giving, and then you finally, 401, what's 401? 401, it's always the same thing. It's evangelism, it's outreach, it's discipleship, it's now that you've figured everything else out, you have graduated on to being able to one day share it with others. And do you know how much smaller a 401 class is than a 101 class, Right? Nobody makes it to 401. And usually the people that do love 401. We say that you have to like have everything else figured out. You have to have learned and done and accomplished with so much, gotten past so much, straightened out so much in your life before you finally can move on to this. That if you don't, that you'll never get those things any other way. And we have taken the very mode that Jesus gave us for discipleship and we have changed it. And we have changed it drastically and we have only done that to fit the way we want it to be. Because we want to be in control of it. We want to say, you learn this and this and this and this and then we can all feel good that you learn those things and now we can move on to this. That wasn't how Jesus did it with his disciples. Nobody ever feels ready to do the big things that they're called to do, right? You think, you, think, you think the Newman's going on with a baby? We're just like, we got this. No, nobody ever feels that way going home with a baby. I didn't feel that way. I dated my wife five and a half years. I did not feel when we got married like I knew what I was doing, okay? We had been to the, we'd done the premarital counseling. We read all the books. We knew each other very well, but I still was like, I had no idea how to do this. And I wasn't very good at it for a long time. The only people who are like, okay, no, I'm good. I've got this are grandparents, right? <laughs> grandparents are like, yeah, I'm good. I'm totally fine. I got this. I'm not worried. I love every minute of it. I feel fully equipped to spoil your kid 
and watch you do all the rest of the work, right? <laughs> but this is how we feel when we step into things. And this is the reality of stepping into things that are big, is that you just step into it and you start walking and you're not good at first. You're not good at first. I'm not saying that they were, but the disciples, they were so great at first, right? The disciples were so great. No, but we have to step into it. We have to begin walking down that road rather than feel like we can construct our own process that makes us good at every step before we move on to the next thing. We also make the mistake of, of making gifts roles. We make the mistake of talking about spiritual gifts and saying, oh, look, you've, you've got a gift. You've got a gift of, 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 of worship and of service or of administration or of leadership. And that gift determines your role. It determines your job. And now the way that God wants to use you and the way that you get to be a part of the Great Commission is to do that thing forever. That's what we do. That's what we tell people. And we're going to talk about this a lot more next week when we talk about how do we do this? How do we get there? But a big part of it is that in order to make church happen, we have, we have, we have been like, we need people to do things. And so like, if you do this thing, then yes, you're making disciples. And there's some truth to that, but that's not what it is to just make disciples. And perhaps the worst of all, or I should say the best thing of all about this, is that when Jesus talks about discipleship, when he talks about growing and maturity, it's all built around this one very basic principle. And this very basic principle is this, you must die to yourself. So when Jesus talks about being a disciple, he says, you'll have to die to yourself. How do we even define that, right? What does this mean? to die to yourself for the sake of Jesus, to grow in maturity? Does it mean stop being naughty and stop doing bad things? Does it mean be disciplined and be self-controlled? Die to your urges and your desires. Become a better, harder working version of you. No, that's not new. That's not Jesus. I can get that if I walk down the cereal aisle and I look at a box of Wheaties, right? You look at a picture of somebody, you go, you know what? If I die to myself just enough, I can have that maybe. I can be that way. That's self-discipline. That's self-improvement. That's responsibility. Call it whatever you want. Dave Ramsey says, live like no one else now so that you can live like no one else later, right? It makes a lot of sense with finances, Dying to ourself is not about that. Dying to ourself is about our agenda. Dying to ourself is about our purpose. Dying to ourself is about the very thing that we really want life to be able to be a pursuit of. What Jesus is saying to his disciples when they get out of the boat and they follow him is he's saying, let go of what you wanted life to be about before me. And life now is about my mission if you want to understand mission, think for a half of one second about a person serving in the military, okay? Because that's what it looks like. It's very simple. You walk away, you join this thing, and that thing now dictates your mission. There are people with all types of personalities and maturity levels and abilities and roles who are a part of that, but they're all doing the same thing, and that mission dictates their life. This is what he means when he says, die to yourself. Pick up your cross. Why? Because that's what Jesus did. Jesus said, I'm going to put aside some ambition that involves Jesus being proclaimed and Jesus being glorified, and I'm going to, for the sake of the Father, I'm going to serve all of you. And I'm going to do that, and that's why I'm dying to myself. And that's what I call you to do. So I don't think that doing this that if this is where we go as a church, that if, from, that if from moving forward here at this church, what it is to be a believer is to be a part of God's mission. And what it means to be a part of God's mission is that that dictates everything that we do. What it means to be a part of God's mission is that we begin to seek to reach the lost. Every one of us seek to reach the lost. 
that every one of us seek to, to disciple so that others will disciple. I don't think that means that we suffer. I don't think that means that we grow immature. I don't think that means that we backslide into all kinds of bad things. I don't think it means our church falls apart and we lose our sense of community or family. Because what we see with Jesus, if you see what I see, is that it is the context through which all of that happens. And when we're honest, we often look around at the world and we look around even at the church and we say, I don't see what Jesus was doing. I don't, I don't see the kind of community that Jesus was creating. I don't see the kinds of things in terms of the impact that I saw the church making in terms of the impact. Well, it's no surprise. Because for many of us, for most of us, we don't live the way that the church lived back then. One of the most incredible things about the the depiction of the early church is is that people were told to stay where they were most of the time. People were told to keep their jobs and stay in their families. That's why you know, that's why there's so many instructions to people with non-believing spouses, to slaves and servants, because they went to their pastors and their leaders and said, can I get out of this thing? Or shouldn't I leave this? Shouldn't I be liberated? And what did they say? They said, they said, serve and live and be in this marriage and in this family, in this role, do it in a way that is honoring to the Lord because you're now a missionary. And that's what you see throughout the church. And you see accounts, written historical accounts outside the church of, like, of what that was like for these Christians to be everywhere, to be in everything, in all the jobs and all the households and, and, and in all the aspects of society, from the lowest to the highest. Now, I'm a skeptic by nature. I am a doubtful person by nature. And so when somebody says to me, um, here's something that, that we should do, that God wants us to do, and it feels different maybe in some way from something I've done before, my first thought is, this is just what you want to do, right? This is just what this person wants or what this person likes. So, you know, you can rest assured that this is not what I want to do. Because when I first read this in scripture years ago, as my wife and I are reading through the Bible and talking about what Jesus is calling us to do, as pastors doing ministry in a church, I was like, I don't like this. I don't want to do this. I don't, is this really, like like I'm trying to get past this, I have all kinds of reasons to want this to be different, to want to believe that we can just continue as we are. Because I like the place I have in what we have. And I like the way that things are right now. And I like my church friends. And I like my family the way it is. And honestly, I like those things a lot more than I have a heart for anybody outside of those things. But as I kept going back to this again and again, I kept going. God keeps putting this in front of us. But I recognize that it's not something I want to do. It's not something that I feel good at doing. I don't say this to you as an evangelist, somebody with the gift of evangelism. I say this to you as somebody who's in many ways a part of the church knowing that certain things about the church probably have to change, probably have to shift in order for us to be able to continue reaching the lost. And it began, hard, it began to be harder and harder for me to be able to teach God's word without feeling like I was ignoring, I had to ignore the mission that we were supposed to be a part of. It's just, it's there, it's everywhere. It's hard to talk about Jesus without talking about the context of, what, of how he did everything. It's hard to talk about any call to anybody in the New Testament without talking about the mission that they were a part of because it's like trying to talk to a soldier without talking about the war that they're fighting without talking about the mission that dictates their life. And I say that not so that you think, okay, now what the heck are you talking about? You're telling us this is where we're going, but it's not something you want to do. (laughs) The reason I say that is because I think it's perfectly normal for us to see the call that is on all of us. For many of us coming to faith without necessarily fully grasping that call. And then to feel like it kind of throws us. 
And so because of that, the only way that we can actually really take up this call is for our hearts to really resonate with this. And for many of us, that means for our hearts to change. We have to develop a heart for the lost. We cannot seek the lost out of guilt, out of shame, out of obligation. We can't do it because someone said to her, because that's what our church is talking about now, and I guess that's fine. We seek the lost because we have a heart for the lost, because our hearts break for those who don't yet know the good news. We develop a heart for the sheep who need feeding. And we have to be able to see the insurmountable joy that comes from following Jesus. Following Jesus brings joy. And we have to trust. You want to talk about faith. We have to trust that there is joy in something that is difficult like this. Not the kind of difficult that says do more push-ups and lose some weight and be more disciplined and, and in the end you'll be more successful anyway. I'm talking about the kind of faith that says let go of your life and trust that on the other side of that is a profound and deep sense of joy. Wherever he leads. So if we have to see our hearts change, then where we start is we start by praying. Last week we talked about the gospel and how we start by just being in the word. And if you're not already in the word, then I want you to be in the word. I want you to read the Bible. If you look in your bulletins, there's like a bookmark in there. And on one side of the bookmark is if you want something to read. There, we'll always update it. There will always be something in there that you can continue to track along with. If you skip a day, don't worry too much about it. I think it's like five days a week. So if you miss two days, that's okay. Just keep going. But we can't talk about the gospel and not read the gospel, not look at the gospel. See it for ourselves and ask ourselves the question, do I see what Ed sees? Now, the other thing that we must do is we have to pray. We have to pray. We have to start asking God if our hearts need to change, to change our hearts. Because nobody wants to do something that they don't want to do. And for many of us, that's what we feel like the response is. Okay, great. I guess now. I remember that sense of feeling um, like I saw something in Scripture that I didn't want to do, but I knew I was supposed to, and the kind of despair that came with that. The feeling of, oh, okay, I guess that's how life will be from now on. It's just maybe doing something that I don't want. And I'm so grateful that there were people around me who said, you need to pray and you need to talk to God. and You need to say, God, give me a heart for this. Break my heart for the, those that don't know you. Give me a burden for those who don't yet understand you through discipleship. Give me a burden for wanting to disciple them so that they don't just love me and think I'm great and repeat all the things I ever told them until they die, but that they go and want to disciple someone else instead. To pray for specific people. To begin to think about who doesn't know God, who, who isn't mature in the faith, who needs to grow up in the faith, and, who, and to think about that and to begin to write those names down and to begin to pray for them daily. To begin to pray, God, change my heart, soften my heart, change their heart, soften their heart. I will tell you, God does the majority of the work in this scenario. But we don't realize that because we don't involve him much in it. We don't ask him to do a work in us. We don't ask him to do a work in others. But he does. I've never seen prayers answered like I've seen in being a part of God's mission. Never. Not even close. I've never seen God change my heart and do things in my own life through the, through the years that I spent being absorbed in my own faith alone versus the time that God said, go and reach others with the gospel. So we're going to read and we're going to pray. And I encourage you, take these bookmarks out, keep them with you somewhere, keep them in your Bible, and, and add to that list as God puts people in your life. There may be people in your life that you're afraid to add to the list. I know that sounds weird, right? You go, there might be somebody who's, I might have a father, I might have a mother, I might have a child, I might have somebody who's been a part of my life for so long and who doesn't know God and I can't imagine them knowing God and at this point I don't want to pray about it or hope for it anymore because I don't even know how I could have a part in that happening. Pray for that person. It says, in the, it says elsewhere in 1 Peter, he encourages them to live their lives in a certain way and to take up this mission and he says, so that one day you may see them in heaven 
praising your father on the day of visitation. Think about that for a second. Think about somebody who just is so far from ever knowing God that you're like, they would never know God. Now think about that person not coming to church, not praying a prayer, not starting to read their Bible. Think about that person praising God with everything in them on the day of visitation in heaven. And think about knowing that that, that there was something about your life and about what you chose to do that participated, that, that contributed to that thing happening. That thing that seems almost too good to be true, right? This is what the disciples lived. This is why they got out of their boats and they followed him. This is what we're gonna do. This is where we're going. Let's pray. Father, as I said before, I confess that this is not um, what I want when I'm honest. Um, I want your call to look different. I wanted to involve different things. I wanted to ask different things of me. And I mean, ultimately, I do want it to be about me. And by extension to me, those that I'm closest to. But Father, you, um, you call us to follow you and that you, you tell that you will make us fishers of men, Lord. And our prayer is that as a church, as we begin to ask these questions without knowing the answers, without knowing what this looks like for us personally, without knowing where this goes for all of our individual lives, God, we still pray that you would begin moving us down this path of being a church that exists to glorify you and to reach those who don't yet know you, Lord. Our prayer is that our city would be changed by that because more people come to know you. Because more people grow in their faith and have a stirring in their heart to go disciple others. Our prayer, God, is that you would change our hearts and that you would absolutely break our hearts for the people that we live around and the people that you've put in our lives who don't yet know you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There's an author named John Piper, and he wrote this book called Don't Waste Your Life. And I can save you a lot of time by just telling you the point of the book is this. If you don't live this, you're wasting your life that God has given you. The one call he's given us, the one mission that he's asked us to be a part of is this mission. To do this is to fulfill what God intends to fulfill in us. The very purpose he's given us and why he created us and why he asked us to come along with him in it. To not do this is to waste the time that we've been given and the life that we've been given. And that's hard because that feels so counterintuitive. It feels opposite sometimes. It feels like we might be wasting our life to choose to live it for something but ourselves. But faith is believing that following Jesus in this way leads to more joy than anything else that we could ever pursue. Amen? Amen. All right, God bless you guys. Have a great week.